All right, so we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we're calling it the life of Jesus, obviously, because uh, it's about his Jesus' life. And um, so we come to this interesting passage this morning, and, you know, I'll be honest, it was sort of a difficult, long passage. Um, it's an interesting passage because it's made up of a couple different stories. So it starts off with the uh, calling of the disciples, uh, and that's in all of, all of the uh, Gospel accounts, uh, the calling of the disciples. But then after that, you have these uh, interesting uh, interactions uh, between Jesus and his family uh, in verse 21, and then Jesus and the scribes, and then it goes back to Jesus and the family again. And of course, you have the, the famous uh, story of the unforgivable sin, uh, which is a really interesting uh, story. There's lots of debates about what exactly the unforgivable sin is. Uh, but suffice to say, this passage is long, and it seems to have no coherence to it. I don't know if you noticed that when you read it, uh, but there seems to be just a, a bunch of disjun- uh, you know, disjointed stories uh, that don't have any connection. Um, but as I began to, uh, to study it this week, uh, I realized that there was a, a massive theme. One thing we have to understand is that you know, Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels. It's about half the size of all the other ones. Uh, so when Mark is writing his Gospel, he's, uh, you know, if he puts anything in there, it's on purpose. Uh, so if there seems to be a bunch of different stories that are disconnected, we have, to look clo- we have to look closer. But I don't know if you notice this. Jesus' family comes up twice. And then at the very end of the passage, Jesus asks this very striking question uh, when, when his family comes up and tries to get him out of the crowd. If you want to look at verse um, 32... Uh, It says that the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Jesus answered them, Who are my mothers and my brothers? That is the question of our passage this morning. Uh, And that's what I hope to convince you. The entire passage is about who is Jesus' family. Who is Jesus' family? And uh, the the entire purpose that uh, Mark puts all these stories and lumps them together is he wants to teach us something about why Jesus came to this earth. You know, last week we talked about our need for forgiveness. And Jesus died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. But another reason that Jesus came to this earth and uh, lived uh, a full human life and died on the cross and rose from the dead, another reason that he came was to gather together a worldwide family. Jesus has come to gather together a worldwide international family under the fatherhood of God, through his own work. And what is that worldwide family? Well, that's the church. You know, Jesus uses a lot of illustrations uh, about the church, and so does Paul uh, and the rest of the Old Testament. But one of the Bible's favorite pictures for the church is family. The church is the family of God. We call God Father. That's what Jesus taught us when he gave us his prayer, uh, the Lord's Prayer. And Paul tells us to treat one another as brothers and sisters. And so what Mark wants to teach us this morning is that Jesus has come to unite a family together, uh, and that family is called the church. And, you know, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of the church being a family. You know, on the one hand, you know, I don't know how you grew up. Uh, I don't know what your family was like when you grew up. Maybe you had uh, really good parents. Uh, maybe you had really supportive uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, I did not. Uh, I had really great parents. My sisters, uh, not so much. You know, there was lots of drama going on when I was growing up. I was the youngest son, the only son, uh, so I was a little outnumbered. 
And, uh, you know, me and my oldest sister, we sort of had a lot of drama growing up, and it climaxed one Christmas morning when my sister, my oldest sister, decided to get my middle sister tickets to the Counting Crows, and they were going to go together. And I said, oh, two tickets. Okay, well, she's surely I'm the better sibling. She's going to get me something even better. And I opened up my present, and lo and behold, there's a sweatshirt in there. But not just a sweatshirt. It's a Sam Houston State University sweatshirt. And guess where she went to college at that time? Sam Houston State University, which means she forgot my, uh, my Christmas present, and she went to the uh, college store to, uh, to get it on the way home from, co- uh, from college. And uh, that started a, uh, a lot of drama between my, me and my sister. I've learned to forgive her uh, because I'm the bigger person. But I don't know, you know how you grew up uh, in your own family. I don't know if you had supportive parents or if your parents neglected you. I don't know how, uh, you know, how uh, your interaction was with your siblings. But even more than that, I don't know your, uh, uh, your experience with the church growing up. Maybe you didn't grow up in the church at all, or maybe you grew up in, in a fantastic church. Or, and I'm assuming this is true, maybe you've had a lot of heartbreak from church. Because as amazing as the church is, and I've been working in church for almost seven years now, as amazing as it is, it can be a place of great hurt, uh, of betrayal, of drama, of fighting, of backbiting. You know, the church that I was in uh, in Texas, this is where I came from, uh, it split from another church, not because it wanted to, but because the pastor was funneling money. He was stealing money. And when we approached him, he said, ah, it's not a big deal. And uh, so, you know, I don't know what your experiences were, uh, either in your family or your church, but we do know the ideal of what a family should be. What should a family be? Well, it should be a place of unconditional love. It should be a place of support. Uh, It should be a place of accountability and of growth. It should be a place where the, the bondedness between you and your family is deeper than blood. Where you say, I'm not giving up on you no matter what. We know that that's the ideal, and what Mark wants to teach us this morning is that that's what God wants for the church. God wants to be a father. That's his deepest longings of his own heart, and he wants to unite the church through Jesus Christ as brothers and sisters under the fatherhood of God, and he wants it to be a church that reaches to the ends of the earth, a worldwide family. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, and we have two points. Now, I've got to be honest with you. Uh, you know, I just noticed this yesterday. Uh, but usually I like to put funny stories in there. The funny stories are going to come off at the very end. So uh, you guys, you just got to pay attention. Uh, because, you know, I'll be honest with you, this, this uh, passage has a lot of uh, context to it. It's got a lot of uh, assumptions on Mark's end. He didn't really try that hard to <laughs> help us to see what's going on in the passage. And so what I want to do is I, I want to give a lot of context at the very beginning, at the very front, and then I want to end with some applications. Uh, because what I, you know, this passage is amazing, if we get it. Uh, and it's amazing for the church as we know it. It has a big, massive, important message for the church. And you're part of the church. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're part of the church. And so Mark wants to tell us something, but we have to jump through his literary hoops, as it were, to get there. And so we have two points this morning. The first point is the, uh, the formation of God's new family. The formation of God's new family. And uh, the second is, how do, how do we participate in God's new family? So the formation of God's new family, and then how to participate in God's new family. So we can jump right in here in verse 13. Okay? 
In verse 13, uh, Mark says this about Jesus, that he went to the top, uh, sorry, he went up on the mountain and called, him, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And what's Jesus, Jesus doing right here? Well, on the one hand, he's calling twelve disciples, but on the other hand, he's doing something much larger. He's forming a new worldwide family. Now, how do we know that? Well, again, we need some context. Mark is writing these words down, assuming that we understand the Old Testament. So we have to go back to the beginning. Uh, all the way to the beginning of Genesis, we're told that when God created Adam, he didn't just create Adam as a creature. Right? It says of the animals that they were created after their own kind, but he created Adam in his own image. And not just in his own image, but he breathed his own life into Adam, is what it said. And the early church universally understood that to be the Holy Spirit. And so Adam was created in God's own image, with God's own life, and then he tasked humanity to spread that image across the world. What was God wanting from the very beginning? To create a worldwide family, created in his image, participating in his own life, spread across the entire world. Adam for forfeited his inheritance, by sinning. You know, just like the prodigal son, he ran away from his father, uh, and ever since then we felt the effects of that sin. But that wasn't the end of the story. The entire rest of the Old Testament tells us about this small nation called Israel. Okay, and Mark wants us to, Mark's assuming that we understand the Old Testament. Because what happened uh, with this small nation called Israel? Well, God, in his grace, rescued Israel from Egypt. Right? They went through the Red, uh, the Red Sea, they went into the wilderness, they followed uh, you know, the cloud and, uh, by day and the fire by night and so on and so forth. But what did he do when, once he got them <coughs> out into the wilderness? Well, it says that he went on top of a mountain and he gathered the 12 tribes to the bottom of the mountain and what did he do there? He made a covenant with them. Or he made a blood bond with Israel. Right? He, uh, he made Israel his firstborn son, is what uh, the Old Testament tells us, so that he would be a father to them and Israel would be his firstborn son. And uh, so that's, that's uh, what happened with, between him and Israel. And of course, they sinned by the end of the Old Testament. We have not, not just one broken family, but two. But I want us to look here at verse 13. It says in the Old Testament, God went and made a covenant with Israel at the top of this mountain with, the, with these 12 tribes. What does Mark say? Uh, in verse 13, well, it says that Jesus went up on top of a mountain. You see that? And Jesus called 12 disciples to himself. Now, is that just a coincidence? The answer is no. Mark is trying to tell us something about Jesus. He's not just Messiah. Right? He's not just the man. He's the sovereign Lord. And he's calling to himself a new 12 tribes. Uh, the beginning of a new worldwide family over whom he would be Lord. And the 12 disciples were the beginning, right? They were, the, they were just this small beginning of this new worldwide family, but what does Jesus do at the end of the Gospels? He sends them out to the ends of the earth. Jesus' intention in calling the disciples is to create a new worldwide family over whom he would be Lord. And, you know, it's even more interesting. This is just a bonus fact for you. Uh, is he renames Simon and uh, James and John. They were the patriarchs of this new Israel. 
You know, remember when Yahweh renamed Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel, and so on? They're the new patriarchs. They're the new forefathers of this new Israel that God is creating. But the long and short here is that Jesus is creating a new family of God. Okay? So we got that down. That's, that's our entire first point. Now let's jump into how we can participate in this new family. All right? So <coughs> point two, how can we participate in this new family? Uh, I'm going look here back at, at verse 14. Uh, and this is sort of the key verse that if we can sort of lock this in, we can understand the rest of the passage. We can understand Jesus' interaction with his biological family and with the scribes and the unforgivable sin and so on uh, if we get verse 14. Uh, and verse 14 says this, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that he might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Okay, so the question we're asking is, how can we be part of this new family? Well, <clears throat> there's a key phrase uh, that Mark brings up several times in this passage, and that key phrase is to be with him. To be with him. Jesus appointed the twelve disciples to be with him. And I want you to notice that it's only when they are with him that they receive this authority to preach, to cast out demons. It's only when they're with him that they receive this vocation to be this new family of God, this new Israel. And uh, so what Mark is trying to tell us is that participation in God's family comes by being with Christ. Okay? And, and, and uh, there's even a more striking uh, example at the bottom of this passage. If you go uh, to... Uh, Verse 32, it says that the family came to get Christ. And in verse 32, they say, you know, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those around him, those would have been the disciples, he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Okay? So again, Mark is saying, listen, our membership in this new family comes through our proximity to Christ. It comes through our proximity to Christ. It's by being with him that we receive this new membership status. Okay? All right, we have one more step, and then we have some application. One more step. When we understand that membership comes through being with Christ, the rest of the passage opens up. Okay? The rest of the passage opens up. All right, because Mark tells us about these two conflicts, and I know all of you guys are wondering about the unforgivable sin. Uh... We'll cover that in a second. But we have these two conflicts that Jesus runs into. The first is with his family. If you look at verse 21, it says that when his family heard about what Jesus was doing, that he was doing these miracles, he was appointing these uh, apostles and so on, it says that they came out to seize him. For they were saying he's out of his mind. Right? So his biological family comes to get him out of the crowds, presumably because they're embarrassed by him. And they try to get him out, and they say, you know, he's just out of his mind. He's going bonkers, right? We just, we got to get him out of here, okay? And then the next story talks about the scribes. And in verse 22, it says that the scribes came down from Jerusalem, uh, and they were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, right, which is a demon. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So you have these two crowds. On the one hand, there's the family of Christ. On the other hand, there's the scribe. And both of them think that he's crazy or demon-possessed or whatever. Okay? Now, how does this relate to the formation of Christ's new family? Well, it locks into place when you consider who they are. 
right? Who's the first crowd? It's, you know, it's easy enough to understand they're the biological family of Christ. They knew him. They would have grown up with him. They would, you know, Mary would have changed Jesus' diapers, right? They would have uh, you know, been uh, uh, you know, doing carpentry with him, eating meals with him, living this, under the same roof as him. And yet, what does it say? He's out of his mind, right? And then, who are the scribes? Well, the scribes were the leaders of the Jewish nation, or one of them, right? They were the leaders of the ethnic family of Christ, the Jewish nation. Uh, And so both of these crowds are related to him in some way. They're family with him in some way, either biologically or ethnically or nationally. And when we're reading this, we're assuming, ah, this is the inside. This is the family of Christ. And yet, what is Mark wanting to tell us? That those who are connected by blood, those who are connected nationally or ethnically, those whom we assume are on the inside are what? They're on the outside. Those who are related to Christ by every other physical means and who should be on the inside, who should be in the family, are what? On the outside. Right? And this, and this comes uh, to a climax at the very end of the passage because Mark tells us that at the very end, his mother and brothers, and, uh, they came in verse 31, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Right? Notice Mark says outside two times. And what is he trying to say? Well, those who should be on the inside, the biological family of Christ, are what? They're on the outside. Those who are connected to Jesus by blood or by ethnicity or by nationality or by tribal status or whatever it might be, instead of being on the outside, they're now on, on the inside, they're now on the outside. Okay, and Mark is trying to make a point. Those who are on the inside are on the outside, and those who are on the outside are on the inside. Or put another way, the family of God is no longer defined by blood or ethnicity or class or income, or tribal status, or social status. The family of God is the family of God because of Jesus. That's the entire point of this passage. Jesus is forming this new family, and who is in? Well, it's those who are with Christ. In other words, Mark wants us to understand that it is no longer by ethnicity, or nationality, or blood, And here's what we have to understand is Israel understood their relation to God by being in the Jewish nation. And when the church came, there was this this scandal. What do we do with Gentiles? Do we have to circumcise them? Do we have to make them Jewish before they can be in the church? And the answer was no. Why? Because Jesus is at the center of this new thing we call the church. He is the one who gives us the family status. And why? Why? It's because of who he is. He is the true obedient son. Adam forfeited his inheritance by disobedience. Israel forfeited their inheritance. And yet what did Christ do? He obeyed the father and submitted to the father in every area of life. He gave himself in total to the father. Which climaxes in the cross, right? Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Not my will, but your will, father. And so the church is defined by Christ. No longer by blood, no longer by ethnicity, no longer by social status, 
not even by righteousness or by morality, uh, it's defined by Christ. And that's the whole point of the passage. All right, now, <laughs> I understand that was a lot. Uh, I usually like to put in funny stories. I didn't have any. <laughs> uh, but I just want to end with, with an application, <clears throat> okay, or with a couple applications, and then I'll end with an, with an illustration. Here's the application, is that the church, if it is anything, uh, is, it's defined by Christ. Uh, Christ is the son in our universe. Uh, he is the one who gives us our status. He is the one who gives us our identity. He is the one who gives us his very own life in the Holy Spirit. He is what makes the church what it is. And what Mark wants to warn us of, and the real focal point of the passage is the scribes. Because the scribes assumed they were on the inside and that Christ was on the outside. The scribes assumed that Jesus was demon-possessed and they were the righteous ones. And yet, they were on the outside. Mark wants to warn us that if we define the church by anything other than Jesus Christ, we fail to be the church. If we define the family of God other than any, any, by anything other than, by, uh, than Jesus Christ, we fail to be the family of God. And I just want to give you a few uh, examples here. If the church is defined by its worship style, it is no longer the church. It fails to be the church. Right? Sorry, Christian. <laughs> but actually, and I, and I just want you guys to think about this. You know, we have, uh, you know, we, we talk a, a lot about how we have all sorts of different styles of worship in, on our Sunday morning worship. Now, why is that? Because we know that not all of you grew up in the same church tradition. Some of you grew up in higher church uh, uh, places, some lower. Some of you love Hillsong. Some of you put your hands in your pockets during, while, the t- while we're singing Hillsong, right? Some of you love these corporate prayers. Some of you are like, what is going on, right? We understand that. But we're putting these things together because we're not defined by worship style, right? Okay. The church is not defined by worship style. Uh, the church is not defined by the personality of, of any different pastor, right? It's not defined by Brent's personality or my personality or Christian's personality. It's not defined by that at all. The church is not defined by a political person or party. The church is not defined by a social status. And when we put those things in the center and we say, this is what it means to be the family of God, what happens? The church stops becoming the church and it becomes a social club. Or at worst, it becomes a clique. And this is where church conflict comes from. It comes from putting something else besides Jesus at the center. Right? I've heard of churches uh, breaking up because of the color of the carpet. Right? Uh, or where to put the organ. Or how long the sermon should be. And so on. But that's not what the church is defined by. It's defined by Jesus Christ. And, you know, I just have to say, this is one of my favorite things about fellowship. Uh, because, you know, I moved here, you know, we, I've been here for a little over two years. And, you know, one of the, thing, one of the things I loved about uh, the website was that uh, this church is gospel-centered. It's Christ-centered. And when we first moved here, you know, you, you, you never know. You, you think this is a good church. You never know how it's going to work out. But, you know, I started to realize that this church is made up of people from all sorts of backgrounds, 
all sorts of jobs, all sorts of, uh, you know, church traditions even. And you were all, we're all able to come together around Jesus Christ. And it was, quite frankly for Andrew and I, it was very refreshing. Because that means that none of us are better than anyone else. If we all come to, to Christ, if Christ is the defining center, uh, and that's the way a church should be, and it was, it was very refreshing for me. And um, one of the things that, that just confirmed for me that this is a, a nice church is um, my community group. You know, what are some of my hobbies? Uh, and this is, well, I'm ending here after this illustration. What are some of my hobbies? <clears throat> well, I like to read books. I like to watch Stranger Things. Uh, you know, I, I like to watch House Hunters on HGTV. Uh, I, I like to go for a jog every once in a while. All right, now, what are some of the hobbies in, of the people in my small group? They like to shoot guns. They like to hunt. They like to do manly things. And me, you know, whatever. I am me. And yet, and here's the, just the beautiful thing about our small group, and I'm not going to name names. You're welcome. But here's the beautiful thing about our small group is that we're able to relate to one another on a deeper level than all of those things. Right? Even though <laughs> I have, I've hunted one day in my life and I have yet to shoot anything, you know, even though I, you know, I don't like any of that stuff, I'm able to love these people as my brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's, that is a beautiful thing. Right? That is such a beautiful thing when we can come and center around Jesus Christ even with our differences. And I understand we have a lot of differences, but that's okay because we claim the name of Christ. And that's the, that's, that is what the church should be. And I really do believe that, um, you know, imperfectly, but I really do believe that that's what fellowship does. And that's what I want to encourage you to keep on doing. Uh, because you know, we felt very welcomed here when we first moved here, and we still do, uh, because Christ really is at the center. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we just thank you for Christ, uh, that he is our defining reality. And uh, you know, I pray for fellowship and for all of the other churches in this town, for that matter, that Christ would continue to be the defining reality of fellowship and that he would be the uh, center of all the other churches in our town. Help us, even our disagreements, even in, you know, in the places where we're not in the same, you know, we don't have the same hobbies and so on. Help us to put Christ at the center because he is the deepest reality. He is uh, the deepest relatedness that we will ever have. And uh, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.